Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Particularly coming to Australia, I think, was difficult because I was used to making friends quite quickly and quite easily when I moved around. But then when you come to a whole new country where you're very different in terms of what you look like, in terms of what you sound like, in terms of the kind of pop culture stuff you grow up with, no one knew any Bollywood actors. No one knew all the movies I've grown up on. No one knew, uh, you know, anything that I was familiar with. And it was hard to kind of connect on that basis. And welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we have the lovely Priya Sarau. You may know Priya because of her current standing as Miss Universe Australia, but Priya is also a law graduate, policy advisor, and fierce advocate for diversity and inclusion in the media. We talked to Priya all about how she went from interning at the UN to applying for a beauty pageant and why she believes using her platform for good is the most important thing she can possibly do. Here's Priya. Priya Zarao, thank you for joining us on Shameless in Conversation. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You said that like a bit of a tongue tie. <laughs> Shameless in Conversation. Um, we are sitting in the boardroom at work, your work, mm-hmm. because you still work full time. Yeah, I do. I found that so surprising when I first met you. You said, no, 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 I, I'm still working full time in public policy. This Miss Universe thing literally just goes in my free hours when you have them. Yeah, so I got back uh, to full time work literally two days after I won. Wow. So I won on the Thursday. I had the Friday to do press-related stuff and then had the weekend. And then on Monday, I was right back. And yeah. this is like work, work. When I was a kid, this office <laughs> and this vibe is what I imagined work being, where it's like very serious, lots of people in suits. We had to get a pass to get in the building. <laughs> very legit. Yeah, the security is very strict. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I guess it's very different to what I'm doing with uh, the Miss Universe stuff. Yeah. We will get into that sort of dichotomy between your two lives. Mm. But first, we have to start with our first question, which mm-hmm. is the same. And that is to ask, what are you reading, watching, listening? listening to at the moment that you would recommend to other people? To be honest, I haven't had too much time in the, uh, recently to be doing much reading or watching <sighs> no, or listening. So but the last thing I read was Jane Harper's The Dry. Yeah. I just love her stuff and I couldn't put it down start so to finish. Good. 
so, so good. Have yeah. you read much of her other stuff as well? Yeah, I did read her, the book that she released after the dry. I can't remember what it's called. No, I can't remember. Either that that one, that it. one was really good. Is she the one that writes scary stuff? It's not so, it's, th- I would it say dark? thriller. It's defined as a thriller. Yeah. But is there any happiness? Yeah. There is happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's love. There's a bit of love and happiness. And I happy cried at the end of oh. the dry. Yeah. Okay, is it, it Zara was, knows me, would, it, would I like it? It's borderline. <laughs> For you, it's borderline. <laughs> there can be some dark scenes, but not not through the whole thing. It's like probably just towards the end. Mm. But what she's quite well known for is painting like the Australian outback in like this really mm. beautiful, detailed way. Like it's, I think it's a part of the world that you don't see written about in books as much. Absolutely, yeah. I struggle with dark content, Priya. Do you yeah. like dark content? Oh, I wouldn't say I'm much for dark content, but her work just gets you hooked, mm. and she kind of breadcrumbs all the way through, little by little, and you just don't know who's who done it. You know until. <laughs> the very end so that's what I loved about love about reading thrillers yeah. do you like podcasts I, I do like podcasts and I do like your podcast very Don't much know uh, I am not even I'm not even sucking up it is Everybody just feels the blatant truth yeah. to say that it's fine Let's <laughs> you don't have to listen to shameless but it's a bonus point if you do what else do you listen to the knowledge project oh, uh, I've by, never heard of that it's by Shane Parrish he's Canadian um, and you get some really really interesting people Again, I haven't listened to him in a while either, but I just think his conversations are really, really just wise. You know, they just make you feel like you're a better person, just a smarter, a more philosophical, uh, someone that, that cares a lot about life after I finished reading or sorry, listening to one of his podcasts. Mm. So he's really good. That would be my like number one mm. to go. Priya, go to. <laughs> we ask the same question in every episode, which is what were you like as a kid? Oh, um, I was a hugely theatrical I was, uh, I'm very extroverted, maybe not so much at the moment, but just generally I am quite extroverted and super cheeky, just kind of huge tomboy, like an absolute tomboy. I'd be with the boys all the time, playing sport, like lots of energy. Yeah, you what name it. What sports did you like? Don't say cricket. Oh, well, oh, no. I mean. <laughs> you were born in India. It was yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> right. And it's like my dad made it compulsory. You know, cricket's just part of life. My dad could make cricket compulsory and I'd probably (laughs) just roll my eyes at him. Cricket's the worst. Sorry. Do you watch T20? Yeah. T20's not bad. T20's fast paced. Smack it around. The colour. Yeah, everything's huge. Lots of music, lots of vibes. What other sports? I played basketball socially for Ah. the last few years, which which has been fun. But when I was younger, I tried volleyball, netball, soccer, you name it. I was there. Netball was probably my go-to in school I was goal keeper or goal defense the entire time because I'm more of a defensive kind of player so that was my go-to in school you were born in India as we just said yeah do you remember of your life there do you remember anything or were you too young I do remember a bit. So I was born in Hyderabad and then I also grew up in Bombay, Mumbai. I remember kind of living in an apartment and kind of getting to school. I remember this one time mum couldn't drop me to school and we had to get our security guard to ride his like a little cycle and with me up the front through Indian traffic. That memory is just scarred in my brain because I remember being like this young child, like six, a six-year-old, right in the front, just kind of going through traffic <laughs> and petrified, like, just petrified. Nothing would have been protecting you whatsoever. <laughs> no. You're protecting other yeah. things from crashes. It was, yeah, it was pretty scary. It's actually literally burnt in my brain. But yeah, I do remember like bits and pieces here and there. We moved to the Middle East afterwards, so we lived in Oman for a while and then Dubai which is I have really fond memories of Dubai I've made some really really great friends there and then we moved to Australia when I was 10 
10, 11. What was that process of moving like? I mean, mm. especially as a young kid, you're jumping from country to country and there are different cultures you're adapting to and people you're adapting to. Mm. What was that like pre-11, pre-coming to Australia? Uh I did mention that I was quite a theatrical kid and I love, you know, people and being extroverted. So I, it was kind of like an opportunity to kind of reinvent myself everywhere I went. I just remembered playing characters at certain schools. I'd come in, being the new girl and kind of just lie without needing to lie. You know what I mean? Just like pointlessly lying about tiny little things that I'm like, why Why did I say that? But now that I've said it, I just kind of carry it through. Like what? Like, Do you remember uh, Yeah, I have one example. So I wear glasses. Uh, I've been wearing glasses for a long time. And uh, in grade six, my first day, I came in without glasses. And I can't see a thing without them. <laughs> and I just pretended like I didn't wear them. And I was right at the back and I was squinting the entire day. And it was just not a good day. Let me just leave it at that because it's just too embarrassing to even <laughs> recall. And my parents were just like, what are you doing, Priya? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when I was back, I slept them on. Good. <laughs> what about from a loneliness perspective? If you're moving around so much as a kid, does mm-hmm. that mean that you lose all your connections to the friends that you would have made back in other countries and that would be quite hard if you're 11 and you're on the cusp of adolescence yeah it'd be a pretty tricky time right absolutely I think particularly coming to Australia I think was difficult because I was used to making friends quite quickly and quite easily when I moved around but then when you come to a whole new country where you're very different in terms of what you look like in terms of what you sound like in terms of the kind of pop culture stuff you grow up with no one knew any Bollywood actors. No one knew all the movies I've grown up on. No one knew, uh, you know, anything that I was familiar with. And it was hard to kind of connect on that basis. You know, you come into primary school, grade five, grade six, and you're at that kind of weird, awkward phase of your life as well. It's just that awkwardness compounded by the fact that you're also from another country without that kind of common ground to connect you with other kids your age. You said in an interview recently when you actually won the pageant that we're going to speak about in a little bit that the move was challenging and that you didn't fit in anywhere. Mm. How long did it take for that feeling of not fitting in to subside? I don't think I have the exact number of years in my brain but all I can say that right now I feel like when I think of home it's Melbourne at first to be honest I I did everything to try to fit in like I watched neighbors at 6 p.m every day Mm -hmm. to try to copy the accent I would try to say oh no instead of you know how Australians say no in a strange way I've been bagged (laughs) about that obviously so many times we've had apparently Australians say no no it's a very nasal (laughs) sounding no so I try to kind of practice that and copy it my sister and I were in the same boat We, we would do the exact same thing we're like how do we sound like we kind of belong and yeah I would say the first I think year and a half two years was relatively difficult longer for my parents but because my sister and I were young and we had our kind of school friends we were in the process of growing up with it was a little bit easier for us I think there's so many conversations particularly at the moment I mean with both Adam Good's documentaries going Mm. on about the idea that Australia is fundamentally racist. Mm. When you come to Australia at the age of 11, I'm really interested in your experience with that. I mean, I imagine the word racist is not the kind of thing that's propping to mind because mm. you're not thinking about those kinds of things yet. But if you look back, do you feel like that's exactly what it was and that's still what it is? In terms of my experience growing up when I first came here, 
I did experience a bit of kind of racism, particularly from other students. There was a bit of that kind of uh, racial underlying, you know, go back to where you come from. You, I don't know if you can say the you know, word. Say whatever word you want. <laughs> yeah, you curry, C word, you know, uh, like a brown monkey, you know, you know, hairy, C word. Like there's a lot of kind of, kids just are very <laughs> expressive with their language. <laughs> but it comes from somewhere, right? Like if yeah. someone's coming to you and saying those words, mm. particularly about like curry and things like that mm. or monkey, mm. that's coming from somewhere. Kids don't just pick that up. They're yeah. picking it up from their parents who are mm. probably making probably not saying it to your parents or mm. your family but they're mm. probably making them feel the same way right yeah it absolutely comes from somewhere yeah that's for sure and it didn't subside within the first couple of years you know my sister experienced it even like late into her high school years from people calling her names and I don't think enough people talk about it or people experience it but both my sister and I didn't really talk about it much just because we thought even now, I think it's sometimes easier to forget and easier to brush off rather than talk about it. Do you think it's also a case of, um, I don't know, not wanting to make a fuss because we don't really respond very well to people who make a fuss? Yeah, and this is crazy because even after I won Miss Universe Australia, there were people online saying, she's not even Australian. So why would I want to make myself even less Australian by saying, hey, I had a difficult time when I first grew up here, even though that's the truth? Do you find it difficult to even say that now because you're worried about you know, potentially sticking your neck out? Yeah. I have to be careful about the way I address this issue, even though I, you know, I love talking about diversity. I love talking about inclusivity, but talking about my personal experience and putting it out there for people to comment on and dissect and interpret is difficult because I've got to be very careful about the language I use. I don't know how things will be interpreted. Do you think that's because people have seen you win this title and automatically think you now need to carry some kind of like flag of patriotism? Yeah, I have to kind of model everything that's Australian, right? I am Miss Universe Australia and along with that title comes certain kind of connotations, right? So you've got to present yourself a certain way, you've got to look a certain way and you've got to be what Australia is. And for me, the way I'm kind of trying to reposition the title in a, in a sense is that uh, Miss Australia, Miss Universe Australia can be uh, a feminist, uh, a woman of colour, a woman that works uh, full time and um, loves fashion. And, you know, they, these things don't have to be siloed. They can be one and the same thing. How hard is it when you're moving here from a different country with your family to hold on to the culture that sort of like, you know, is fundamentally yours? Yeah. Has your family been able to hold on to many things or in order to, to quote unquote, survive here? Like you've spoken about, you've had to sort of, you know, push a lot of that down. Yeah. My parents grew up in that culture. So they brought us up in that culture because they don't know any different right? Um, and I, or I wasn't allowed to kind of date or see boys until I was very, very old, <laughs> embarrassingly old. And a lot of this cultural stuff sticks through regardless. And Indian communities are there for a reason, right? So everyone can relate to each other in those communities and they talk about how they grew up and they kind of raise their children up in a similar way because they think it's the best because that's how they've experienced it. So in that sense, we did hold on to our culture and the way we've grown up. But we've also kind of learnt, both my parents and my sister and I, we've all kind of learnt and inevitably adopted a lot of the values and a lot of the experience that a lot of the kids have around us, which is great, I think. You know, I've it's like got, an evolution of yeah, culture. And, and it's, a, it's a great kind of fusion, I think, as well. In another interview you did with the Sydney Morning Herald after winning the title, you said that you spent your gap year wanting to do some good, which to me I was like, why did I not do that on my gap year? <laughs> I went on a Kentucky trip on my gap year and I did nothing good for my bank account or my liver. <laughs> 
Or the world. <laughs> or the world. Well, I mean, I didn't do anything bad for the world. <laughs> Just saying. What was it inside you that made you want to go and do good? I think I've always kind of been attracted to, I hate using this phrase, but like social justice type kind of projects where I feel like I'm doing something to help people that don't have it as good as I do. Because I have it pretty damn good, let's be honest. I, I don't know what it is. I can't really have, I don't have the language to express yet why I felt that way. It is so interesting though, because I think that there are so many people that can acknowledge that there is a whole world out there of people that don't have it as good as them, but they don't then go and intern at the United Nations, spend two months in East Timor researching <laughs> legal aid issues, volunteer for the SES as well. I mean, is it in your family? Is your sister quite similar? Is it from your parents? Is it nature versus nurture? Like, can you look around you and say, actually, it might be a couple of those things? Yeah, maybe maybe it's a combination of a few things. So, I mean, my mum, I love my mum so much. She's, you know, my best friend. And I talk to her a lot, particularly as an adult, about the way she's grown up and the opportunities and experiences that she's had and the things that have limited her growing up as well, growing up in, in India in a relatively kind of patriarchal environment. And she did not have the freedoms that I have now. And she is just one woman. There are women like her all over the world. And there's people like her all over the world, not just women, that don't have the opportunities I do now. So I don't just want to enjoy it for myself. It's almost like a sense of responsibility, I feel like. Oh, I have time. I have money. I have resources. I have these things. Why don't I do something that can help others? I don't know if I've been very eloquent with that, but I'm just trying to express it in a way that makes sense. Tell us about East Timor. What was that like? Yeah, East Timor was amazing. It was very difficult while I was there because it's still very much a developing country. There were no road signs. Public transport was very difficult. Um, It was this tiny little van that you've got to try to squeeze into. I was there with the UNDP and I had uh, a couple of really good people there mentoring me and supervising me. There was one woman, she was Australian. She was born in Australia, but she kind of got into the UN system through her Japanese citizenship. I really got along with her really well and she studied at Oxford and she's very much like, oh, I want to be her when I grow up kind of of situation. So that was really cool. Like I, I loved like speaking to her and learning from her. But it, yeah, it was a really kind of interesting environment to spend a bit of time in. Very kind of difficult, very difficult because water supply obviously wasn't, you can't rely on it. Electricity, you can't rely on it. Even walking down to work from where I was, there would be people kind of in, in slums on the roads and people would yell out or I didn't feel safe at all times. And but at the same time, it was such, such a good experience professionally just because, you know, working for the UN or, or UN agency is, an, is a dream that I think every art student has when they're at uni. And just to kind of attain that and experience it and contribute something valuable was awesome. Did you get culture shock when you came back to Melbourne? Surprisingly not. Surprisingly not, yeah. I think it's probably just the experience I've had moving around. I just don't really get that anymore. It takes me about two days to kind of be like, okay, back back home. And you did come home and you went to uni, you were studying arts, and then you went into law. What was it about law that you were so interested in pursuing? Was it this same idea we keep coming back to and being like, this is the kind of thing that can help me enact the most change? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I think a lot of it comes down... And this is the way I think about it in my head. This may be completely wrong, but a lot of it comes down to what I think is power. What can give me a bit more power, a bit more kind of ability to influence, to change, to help? And I think a degree kind of like law has so many different avenues you can use those skills in. 
and that's pretty much what was the most attractive thing about it. Yeah, even throughout my law degree, I did a lot of the social justice, public interest kind of subjects. I think I won like a, the Daniel McCluskey Social Justice Award uh, at one point. <laughs> it so very you, humble brag. Point. Yeah, yeah, I know. There's a, there's a kind of underlying theme throughout yeah. the entire. Pro- I didn't even think about this before, <laughs> by the way. Just we're like psychoanalyzing. Actually, you. just <laughs> seeing my therapist. <laughs> what makes you go from where we're sitting right now, which, as we said at the very, very beginning of this is quite a serious, quite a regimented workplace. I mean, what, it's the Department of Jobs, Precincts and Regions. (laughs) And you work in public policy, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What makes someone like you want to go and then do beauty pageants, Mm. in particular the Miss Universe Australia pageant? I'll give you the short answer and then I'll give you the long answer after that if you Perfect. want well, both. Perfect. all the time in the world. Great. <laughs> um, well, the short answer was, again, the theme that we kind of come back to is that idea of power, right? So I can have conversations about diversity, inclusion, women and, you know, women's issues with my friends who are also very well educated and also think like me and we can, it'll be like preaching to the choir or I can use something like I have now like a few, a bit of a following to kind of post about things that people might not always hear about. So I have these conversations with people outside my immediate circle who may not be exposed to that kind of information, may not be exposed to those ideas before. Coming up after the break, how Priya found herself applying for Miss Universe Australia. But first, a word from our sponsor. Did you ever worry, even with all of those ideas in mind, thinking, okay, this is where I'm going to find my power, this is where I'm going to find my following, and these are the kinds of places that I'm going to sort of try and talk about my issues, that people would, I don't know, that it it may still undermine the work that you're doing because people now have to see you in two minds, the public policy advisor and the beauty pageant girl. Mm. Did Did that cross your mind and you thought it's still a compromise I'm willing to take, if it even is a compromise? That thought has never crossed my mind. I think people should get used to seeing someone that can do both. Yeah, uh, It shouldn't be such a strange thing. And everyone's multifaceted. If you talk to anyone genuinely, everyone has so many different interests, so many different, particularly me. I, I feel like I, you know, I'm several people in one in a lot of ways just because I have so many different things that I want to do. One lifetime is too short. And why limit yourself? Well, it comes yeah. back to those silos you were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It does come back to kind of people wanting to identify and finding it easier to understand a person if they put you in a box you know oh yeah you're you're a migrant you know you come from you know you grew up elsewhere and of course you stand for diversity but also you can't possibly be also be into fashion and like the beauty industry or you know you can't be an advocate or a supporter and have an interest in both Mm. yeah Tell us about the pageant itself. This is such a frivolous question, but I want to know about, first of all, how do you figure out what outfits you want to wear to the pageant? <laughs> like, how do you pick the dress? You know how when there's like a judging thing and it's the main, sorry, yeah. this is so not technical. Where do you find them? Yeah. Where do you no, get the question. dress that is the main dress <laughs> yeah. when they decide who is Miss Universe Australia? So for the program, each state has their own dress sponsor and ours was Senor Mont, who does a lot of bridal wear and essentially he was not expecting seven people from Victoria to have made the national finals. He was not prepared for it. And he fit us into like some of the samples that he had already. And I fit into one of the samples that he had. And that, that is the story of my dress. <laughs> was it white? Was it white or was it like glittery? It was pink. pink. It was, yeah, pink. Uh, it was like a velvet upper kind of part. And 
<laughs> really bad at describing dresses, okay? And then it was like a lighter pink little skirt-like thing down the bottom. Did you feel great in it? <laughs> yeah, I felt good. I, I, I felt pretty good in it. And my attitude to these things was just like, you just, you just rock what you have. Yeah. You know, you just, confidence is, confidence is key. Yeah. <laughs> as, I, as much as I hate saying cliche things, but it's just, it's just true in that instance. What about the stuff like bikinis? How do you pick what bikini you're going to wear in front of all these people? I actually didn't get a choice. No one got a choice as to what swimwear they wore. Right. Yeah, because I think swimwear is quite a personal thing, right? Mm. Yeah, because you're like, oh, I'm not comfortable with this or I'm not comfortable with that. We just got kind of got, you know, thrown a piece of uh, like swimwear. I think the organisers are kind of aware of what you look like and, you know, what your body shape is like and what's, you know, what they think would suit you and what you'd be comfortable with. So they kind of pair you up with a bikini or like a swimwear of any kind that they think you'd be comfortable in. Mm. And yeah, that's how it was the bikini chose me (laughs) is that really daunting walking out in front of a whole room of people in bathers with like stage lighting like walking like walking down the beach is one thing yeah some women struggle with that Mm. walking in front of a room full of people with stage lighting on you while you're half (laughs) naked would be very daunting uh yeah it was daunting particularly before I went on just my nerves were just oh my gosh on another level but I think the way I approached it was just take me as I am. This is what I am. This is physically what I am. So take it. Mm. You know, this is, and again, like I come back to just, just rock it. And it's almost like the way you do it speaks more about you than what you're put in or what you physically look, look like. Mm. Again, that's just my approach to it. I was, I did find it daunting, particularly, yeah, the first, the preliminary round where I'm just like, oh, I've never done this before. You know, I barely wear a bikini to the beach. In fact, like I was more comfortable in like a one piece or like, you know, even, yeah, I wasn't completely comfortable in a bikini for a while because I did come from a conservative kind of country growing up. So even that, it was quite foreign to me. So I'm going completely 180, <laughs> you know, in a bikini on a, on a stage with lots of lights. I wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> you touched on before that when you did win, some people came to you and said, you're not Australian or you're not Australian enough. But I can imagine as well that winning Miss Universe Australia would be a title that comes with a fair amount of pressure. Did you feel that when you won the title in the days afterwards? How did you feel about it? Uh when I won the title, honestly, I was just so overwhelmed. It took me about two weeks to believe what had happened and understand what it meant, you know, oh, okay, so I have a Wikipedia page now and all of this information is about me everywhere online. And, you know, I used to Google myself earlier in the year just to see what's out there if I'm employing, you know, if I'm going for another job uh, or what my employers would <laughs> do be. Do I pop up? Yeah, do I pop up? <laughs> what kind of information is out there? But now <laughs> there is so much and pictures and stories and videos and people commenting, people commenting on what I look like and what they think of my voice. There's, yeah, YouTube videos on all kinds of things that people around the world, not just Australia, but pageant fans all around the world have commented on. Yeah. Did you read the comments? Uh, yes, I did. Why? Uh, well, I, I feel like you have to not to read the comments to realize why you shouldn't yeah, read the comments. Yeah, because also because I didn't expect to win and I did not expect the attention that I got. And also, I wasn't really told, you know, you hear celebrity interviews and they're like, oh, I never I never Google myself and I never read comments about myself. And um, that's hard to do because you're like, oh, what is everyone saying about me? Do they do they think I'm, I'd be good in this role? Like, even though it shouldn't matter what people think, 
it did. You know, I want I want to know because I'm curious. When we're talking about going back very quickly to you know the bikini walking, mm. I don't actually know the technical term of that. Thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think one criticism that is leveled at beauty pageants is a size diversity. Thing. Yeah. Mm. What do you think about that? I mean, often we are seeing the same kind of size and these yeah. kinds of pageants. Yeah. Do you think that there is space for that to change, and will it change? Absolutely. I think we saw a bit of a change this year. I don't know whether you watched some of the other contestants that did participate this year. There was a bit of size diversity, but I think there is a lot of room to, for it to change a lot more. Uh, I definitely think it's not as, as inclusive as it can be. And traditionally, beauty has been defined in a very kind of confined, limited way. But I think the fact that someone like me has won is already kind of one step forward. But I think there's a lot of room for a lot more to be done. What did that mean to you? I mean, beyond it being great for from a career standpoint, beyond mm. it being great for all of the things that you've spoken about now, having a platform to talk about the things that you want to talk about, what did it mean to you from a diversity and inclusion standpoint? That's someone with a background like mine, having been brought up in the Middle East and having been born in India, um, ethnically Indian, but someone that calls Australia home, can represent my country on a world stage. That's that's pretty damn incredible. What's next as far as the pageant goes? So the international competition will be held later this year. They haven't announced where it is or when it is, so I'm just Ooh. kind of in a bit of a limbo preparing for something that I, I don't know if it has a end date, deadline. I don't know when it's due and it's kind of giving me a bit of anxiety, but hopefully they announce it sometime soon. That'd be nice. Uh, but, yeah, just, just preparing in terms of just going to the gym as often as I can and just kind of learning how to do my makeup because I don't really know how to do my makeup and just kind of learning how to curl and style my hair nicely. You know how you just kind of... Do you have to do your own hair and makeup for these things? Yeah, you do. You do have to do because you're there for three weeks in the country where it's held. So you're doing your hair and makeup all the time, except for the last, I think, the actual day of the competition where they get hair and makeup artists in to do it for you. I'm actually surprised by that. We should we should go together, Michelle. I'll do your hair and makeup. <laughs> I can't. Okay, yeah. Zara and I are like the perfect couple because she does hair really well and I do makeup really, really well. So together, <laughs> we're kind of okay. Um, you do strike me as a classic overachiever and someone who would be very – you don't have to accept that label, but I'm going to put it on you. <laughs> uh, you also seem like someone who is incredibly driven and ambitious. Do you agree with those labels? I love those labels because yeah. I've embraced the word ambitious from a relatively young age. Mm. Yes, I am ambitious. Do you think there are any downsides of that or is there any side of that that can kind of play on you in a negative way? Yeah, I think people's perspective of me can be influenced by the way I – like if I'm very overt about my ambitiousness, <laughs> you know, people are just like, why? Why do you, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do it all? And sometimes I can be a little bit – embarrassed about maybe sharing what I want to achieve or talking about oh maybe I'll try this or maybe I want to go there or maybe I want to do this uh, and yeah it can it can be a bit kind of nerve-wracking when people don't really want you to be a certain way. Mm. Mm. Do you think in general female ambition is treated negatively in that females are told or women are told that they shouldn't be ambitious or that ambition is a dirty word? Yeah I think that stems from the expectation that women should be likable and likability is kind of synonymous with kind of passive and kind of just do what they are expected to do which is the opposite of being ambitious and I think that's where it kind of stems from if you're, if you're doing something that oh okay ambition and likability are almost at the at opposite ends of the spectrum. 
in, in, in a certain way. I think we can work to change that, though. I think the more people are publicly ambitious mm. and the more they seem kind of likeable at the same time, we can make that change. Yeah. Speaking of likability, though, and I feel like this is a bit of a stretch in my segue, but let's try. Yeah. On Instagram, in a recent post on Instagram, you spoke about speaking at a Melbourne school with a non-for-profit. And yeah. you spoke about how you were discussing topics like privilege. Mm-hmm. The Adam Goods documentary, you said the media's portrayal of African gangs and the concept of whitesplaining. They are not simple, easy topics, let alone are they ones that are spoken about on Instagram in a mainstream context. Mm. Why is Instagram so important to you to be able to talk about things that are quite complex and that do rile people up and that people do struggle to talk about? I think there are a few reasons. The first is because Instagram is now my primary platform, given my role, and, and that's where I have most of my audience. The second is because I think pictures speak very loudly. Uh, Videos, pictures, people can relate to it. People respond really well to it, particularly young, younger people. I think um, I think Twitter is for almost another demographic. I think people that use Instagram a lot more consume uh, consume Instagram are, are younger and also are maybe a little bit less likely to be exposed to these kind of topics and particularly followers of kind of beauty pageant winners, right? So beauty is one kind of industry or one sector. Is that the right term? Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's its own world. It's its it? own little world. And I think a lot of times, you know, if you're into beauty, you aren't necessarily into, I mean, that's a very big generalization, but, you know, you aren't necessarily into or thinking about topics like, you know, white splaining or, you know, thinking much about the Adam Goods documentary. Again, like I said uh, initially, it doesn't have to be two separate things. And I want to hopefully show that it can be discussed, you know, by someone with my title. Can you explain to the listeners who might not have seen the post or your other post what you mean by white splaining and why that's a topic that you want to educate people about? White splaining is essentially kind of when people that are not people of colour are explaining to other people of colour what racism is or what their experiences of racism is. What's a good example? So I'm just going to... Like cultural appropriation, right? Yeah. This is me. I'm just white splaining this to you. No, no, no. No, Because I'm thinking, (laughs) are you in our Facebook group? Uh, no, not okay, yet. So I one join. of the biggest issues we have in our Facebook group is cultural appropriation discussions and white people telling people of colour that something's not racist when it comes to cultural appropriation. We actually have a rule that you're not allowed to criticise a person of colour for being upset or being, and I put this in quotation marks, overly sensitive about a racial issue because as a white person you simply wouldn't know. But it's an issue that we get with new members in the group all the time and there are 25,000 people in there so we constantly have new people coming in and it's something that we need to reiterate all the time that it's a group rule, if you're white, do not tell people of colour what they can and can't be offended by. Do you think cultural appropriation is a big one? And there are others, obviously, I imagine, that extend beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, to that topic, we we explain it to the students that we provide the workshops to in role plays. You know, how would you react if someone said something that offended you and someone was just like, oh, but I'm not being racist. We kind of talk them through. How would you think that this person would feel? Would it minimize their experience? Would they be less likely to talk about it? How would this reflect in policy? So we kind of, yeah, lead students on that discussion. These are 14, 15 year old students, by the way. So it's kind of, you have to kind of know how to pitch it sometimes. And I'm, I'm not professing to be an expert you know I have a bit of lived experience but I myself learn a lot from people even students that I'm engaging with they sometimes are a lot more switched on about these things that I am so it's just about like kind of I think having that conversation 
at the right level. But with you guys, it's it's a lot harder just because you guys are monitoring a group, a huge group of people on your family. What is it, 30,000? Like 26 or something? 20, yeah. yeah, that's a lot of people to have to kind of go down, read comments and monitor and respond to in an intellectual kind of, or like not even intellectual necessarily, but in a kind of informed way and pitching it right so that everyone understands. Yeah. Why do you think white fragility, and I'm using that word again because I think it often is white fragility, mm-hmm. is so closely coupled with anger? Because often if you go back to someone who is white, and this is coming from a white person, and you tell them actually, no, this is offensive, what you've done is offensive, their response is anger. It's not apologetic. Why do you think that might be? I think because this is, again, me guessing that people don't want to admit that they're ignorant about certain issues. And and that happens to me as well. A lot of times where I profess to be an expert on X and Y and Z and someone corrects me, I get angry. That's my natural reaction. And and then I think about it. I take a step back, you know, reflect a little bit at my first reaction and think that was a silly thing to do because I am not informed. <laughs> I need to check myself and really do my research and then come at it from a bit more of a kind of um, not as emotional reaction. But completely understandable, though, I think. I completely understand where that anger comes from because that's like almost an attack on you personally. But also there's that need to step back from it, right, and really assess. Yeah, well, it feels personal, but it's also not about you at all in that moment. Like, it's so much bigger than that. Mm. What do you think generally needs to change when it comes to, I guess, diversity and inclusion in the media? Given it's something you are incredibly passionate about and wanting to speak about with your role, what are the things that you want to see change? Well, in the media, greater representation would be very helpful, just to, just to begin with, just to reflect um, my experience growing up, for example, or, you know, people like me. Um, and a lot of people have reached out to me itself, like on, you know, Instagram messages being like, oh, you know, it's so, so good to have someone like you. Uh, and I feel, I feel so proud. The word proud gets used a lot. And it makes such a big difference to see people that you can relate to on a public forum representing, yeah, like Australia. That's, that's huge. And I know I wished I had a bit of that growing up as well so that you know, I could kind of navigate my life a little bit as well. But yeah, just to have a bit more representation, a bit more discussion, informed, educated, objective discussion about these things like we're you know, doing now or like we do at the workshops about these topics just to take a person that may not have an interest or may not know at all just to make them a bit more curious or make them a bit more informed. Yeah. I think when we take away the personal aspect of it and we kind of remove ourselves and can come at these issues from a bird's eye perspective, mm. it really helps. It's mm. when we're too embedded and we see it as a personal thing or a reflection of who we are or whether or not we are bad or good, mm. that's when we get ourselves into trouble. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And that's and that's where you see a lot of backlash. You find people talking a lot more about, you know, cultural diversity, representat- representation, kind of women's rights, but then there's a huge backlash from the other side as well. You know, the, the opposition grows louder. They, they get a little bit more aggressive because they feel that they're losing power. They're, they're losing this dead they have, you know, in society. I feel like we might have touched on this a little bit in the, and it's been a common thread throughout this entire conversation, but I'm interested in your end game here. Like, what do you want the most? Not necessarily out of this role, mm. but out of all of the work that you want to do. The way I kind of approach everything that I do in life, and it's a very kind of principled approach. I don't have like a five-year game plan, um, just because I don't think it's very realistic, given that I've already said that my interests are so diverse, <laughs> is that 
if I feel like I'm contributing valuably to society in any way, whether it's through government, through Miss Universe Australia, through any other avenue, any other opportunity that arises, I will do it. And at the end of you know my life, when I'm at the, at the nursing home, looking back, thinking, oh, you know, what did I do? Like, what am I proud of? Like, that's what I want to think of and say, hey, that's awesome. I can't believe I did that. And if there are opportunities to do some fun stuff like, you know, fashion or, you know, um, learn a bit about, you know, grooming or doing my makeup or doing my hair, that's, of course, you know, great. But at the end of the day, yeah, that's my that's my kind of hopefully my end goal. Yeah. So many people wouldn't say that. So, Priya, that does make you a pretty spectacular person to have here and to have around. Thank you so much for your time Thank after you. work. You work full time. <laughs> You're doing all of this on top of the many commitments that you already have so a thank you for your time and b thank you for doing so much good michelle i think we should go out and do a bit more good yeah, I feel like you're one of the best people yeah. like most pure-hearted people Please. i've met so thank you we are so appreciative for you making the thank time thank you so us. much for having me this has been excellent thank you thank you so much thank you Freya. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Priya Sarau. For more from Priya, you can find her on Instagram at Priya Sarau. And as for us, well, as always, I hope you guys know by now, we are at Shameless Podcast. We will see you guys on Monday. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.